Hi there, this is Jeff Pooley, and this is New Books in Communications. I just spoke with David Hochfelder, who is the author of The Telegraph in America, 1832 to 1920, which was published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2012. I had a really nice conversation with David, which I hope you'll enjoy. We're here today to talk to David Hochfelder, author of The Telegraph in America, 1832 to 1920. Welcome to New Books in Communication, David, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. Um, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I really enjoyed the book. It looks at uh, The Telegraph in a readable and remarkably concise way, given the many angles through which it views telegraphy, war and politics, the news, uh, and financial capitalism. One of the unusual and refreshing things about the book is the way it mixes together talk about technological features, um, economic impacts, effects on social institutions, and even the psychology of the public. Each chapter advances what is more or less a self-contained argument from a different angle, the effect on the news in one chapter, or the fairly uh, astounding influence on financial markets in another. Uh, It was an absolute pleasure to read, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for your kind words. So can you say a little bit about your background? Uh, I wonder if you would describe yourself as an historian of technology, and if so, you know, how did you get into the field? Um, that's an interesting question. I, yes, I would describe myself as a historian of technology. I think that technology has been one of the formative forces in shaping U.S. history over the past two centuries. So um, it's, it, it's both a personal preference to study that history um, as well as something that's more intellectually or, or even ideologically driven that I think historians pay too little attention um, you know, if you pick up a typical U.S. history textbook, technology generally isn't given the weight that I think it deserves. Um, from a personal standpoint, I'm a former electrical engineer, so there's that. Um, I have a master's degree in electrical engineering and about uh, four years of professional work experience before I decided to go back to school for a Ph.D. in history. So um, my personal background, I think, also as well as the intellectual or ideological engagement, also factored into that decision to study the history of technology um, a bit more thoroughly. And, you know, I didn't realize that about the electrical engineering background. Did that help you uh, come across this particular topic? I mean, did it lead directly to the history of the telegraph? Yeah, I think so in some interesting ways. Um, I made the decision early in grad school, probably midway through my second year, right around when I finished up my comprehensive exams, you know, started looking around for a dissertation topic. And I discovered that there hadn't been all that much written about the telegraph, which surprised me. Um, There was uh, James Carey's famous article about the telegraph and then a book from the late 1940s on the rise of the telegraph industry before the Civil War, uh, Robert Luther Thompson's Wiring a Continent. But other than those two, the the article, uh, Thompson's book and uh, Carey's article, there really didn't seem to be much on the telegraph. And this was on the cusp of the Internet and cell phone revolutions in the 90s, so I thought it was odd that the origin point for those revolutions, the telegraph that is, um, was a really understudied 
piece of technology. So that's really what drew me to it. Great. And, you know, in the case of working on a, a technology like the telegraph in the history of technology, certainly, and also in communication studies, it's fashionable to dismiss what is often called technological determinism. And you address this pretty directly in your conclusion. But could you say something about that charge first, uh, which you are already alluded to a bit, and your own response? Sure. Um I think the problem is less technological determinism. That is the idea that technology is a shaper or driver of history than it is making general sweeping claims on the basis of no evidence. Um, so I think it's, it's clear that there are many things that shape history, many large forces, and historians like to talk about the, the dichotomy or um, tension, maybe is a better way to put it, between investigating large social structures, kind of the, the Annals School or Emmanuel Wallerstein's um, world systems analysis, you know, looking at long-term trends and large-scale social structures versus trying to recapture the experiences of, of historical, fi- or not historical figures, but of ordinary people. So the new social history in some ways. So historians often um, uh, wrestle with what exactly we should be studying, whether it's large-scale social structures that persist over a long period or whether our job should be to recapture lived experience. Uh, and in some ways that mirrors the debate in the history of technology between um, the determinists and the social constructivists. No one is really an out-and-out determinist in the sense that no one believes that technology is the only driving force or necessarily even the most important driving force that helps form these large-scale social structures and which shapes individual lived experience. But I think we need to take into account that technology is very significant. And more than that, that the particular attributes and characteristics, how technologies operate, also needs to be taken into account evaluating their, their social effects. So I think that's where I come down on this. Um, yeah, uh, another, another point to be made here is economists have a notion that they call general purpose technologies, like the steam engine or the electric motor, technologies that can be applied widely throughout society or economic life. They couldn't get out of bed in the morning and do what historians do if they were <laughs> concerned about technological determinism. They basically take it as a given that general purpose technologies are determinative that, that shape economic life. So in some ways, this is something that, that's very specific to the field of the history of technology that scholars and other disciplines really don't concern themselves with. You know, one of the striking things about the book is the way in which, you know, the technological attributes of the telegraph mix in such complicated ways with the economics and business history of the telegraph. And we'll get to that in a little bit. In your first chapter, in fact, you talk about the telegraph in the context of the Civil War, where you describe it having had lots of military consequence, but also in part due to the interesting decision to maintain civilian control, um, helped set up a pretty rapidly maturing business after the war. And soon after the war, the dominance of Western Union in particular. And maybe you could talk about that military importance, but also especially the economic consequences after 1865. Sure. Um, what struck me about the use of the telegraph during the Civil War, a couple things. You alluded to civilian control. I think that was extremely important given the nature of the Civil War and the temptation for 
military leaders to um, arrogate power to themselves. I'm thinking of McClellan, General McClellan in particular, who famously remarked that, I think in the summer of 1861, that he could become dictator if he so chose. So establishing civilian control over the military in a time of great national emergency, I think, was in the long run, and short run too, a very wise thing to do. If you don't want military commanders making policy for the government, you want the military to be subject to civilian oversight. And the Telegraph really permitted that. Uh, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton ordered the Telegraph wires taken out of McClellan's headquarters and run into his own War Department offices. And for anyone who's seen the movie Lincoln, there are several scenes where Lincoln is in the War Department Telegraph office. Um, So maintaining civilian control over the Army through the medium of the telegraph, I think, was was a necessary and wise decision. Um, the second issue related to that, <clears throat> the telegraph really was not integrated into the military command structures. So you had the signal corps, which used you know flags and semaphores and other forms of signaling. And the signal corps tried to get control of the telegraph, arguing quite properly from the military standpoint that it's a form of signaling that should be under the Signal Corps' purview and control. So there was tension between um, the Signal Corps' functions on the battlefield and the Telegraph not falling within their command and actually falling out totally outside of the military command structure. Um, In later wars, the Signal Corps did control the telegraphs, the telephones, um, radio communications, all form of military communications, whether tactical, operational, or strategic. But I think during the Civil War, it was important to establish uh, a parallel civilian command and control structure over this very important form of communication. Um, How that relates to the business environment afterwards, Western Union became the nation's first industrial monopoly in 1866, largely as a result of the war. Effectively, what had happened is the dominant telegraph company before the war, the American Telegraph Company, Headlines that ran from Canada to New Orleans along the eastern seaboard. And the Civil War obviously cut their lines in half. Um, Other telegraph companies operated in the southwestern United States, um, Arkansas, Texas, regions like that. And uh, their lines were obviously disrupted by the war. Western Union, on the other hand, happened to be very fortunate geographically. Its network ran from New York and New England west to Chicago, so largely untouched by the war. Um, And it was able to profit enormously, as were the other telegraph companies, but it was able to profit enormously from carrying military and commercial traffic during the war. And after the war, it... um, successfully acquired control of its would-be rivals or geographic counterparts, maybe is a better way to put it. So as a result of just the the quirk of geography and Western Union's network being north and and west of of the major battle areas and its network being largely intact, Western Union was able to gain control of the telegraph industry almost immediately after the war. Great. You know, that leads really well into the second chapter. And here's one of those instances in which you really highlight the complex interplay between the business history and the technological features, and in this case, political pressures, too. Um, You describe in these post-war decades a 
mounting political pressure to essentially widen access to the telegraph. And he described basically a, a postal telegraph movement, which in various schemes uh, uh, attempted to bring telegraphy under government control or ownership. And it, it's a movement that you describe in the book as waxing and waning uh, from the early 1870s all the way up through World War I. Um, it has kind of interesting parallels to some of the media reform movements that are better remembered. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about was this interesting distinction that you make between information on the one hand and communication on the other, uh, noting that Western Union's business model, driven in part by the technological features of the telegraph, was to transmit information for a you know, a couple of well-heeled clients, basically the the business world and the press, rather than enable wide-scale communication uh, um, uh, that some argued for in contrast. So can you explain what you mean by that information communication contrast in the context of Western Union? Sure. Um, the, The folks who wanted to nationalize the telegraph after Western Union established monopoly dominance in the industry Um, wanted to essentially emulate the cheap postage movement of the 1840s and 50s, where postal rates dropped um, precipitously so that ordinary people could afford to send letters. Um, Before the postal, uh, cheap postage movement, rather, uh, postage could be as much as 25 cents per sheet of letter um, sent over distances over, I believe, 500 miles. So it effectively was a business medium the cheap postage reformers turned it into a social medium. And you had a similar phenomenon or a similar argument with regard to the telegraph, that the telegraph was very expensive and only businessmen and, and press agencies used it regularly. Um, ordinary people might send a telegram for emergencies like a death in the family. So reformers wanted to cheapen or lower the cost of telegraphing so that ordinary people could use it as a social medium, much like they had succeeded in doing with the postal system. Western Union responded by saying, well, the postal system is fine for everyday use. Um, The telegraph is properly a business medium. It's not something that should lend itself or can lend itself readily to being a social medium. So what I argue in that chapter effectively is that most people did not encounter the telegraph as a communications medium, but more as an information medium. And the difference is ordinary people couldn't afford to send telegrams on a regular basis and use it to communicate. But most people encountered it because it was a medium for the transmission of information like stock and commodity prices or press dispatches. And just as a quick follow-up, you know there are certain technological features of the telegraph that I wasn't even aware of that made Western Union's position uh, more explainable, at least. Yeah. Basically, the the cost dynamics of it, what I call, or I don't call it that, but what economists would refer to as the marginal cost structure is very different from the postal system. So, for example, if it costs you, let's say, a dollar to transport 100 letters in a mailbag, if you add another 100 letters to that same mailbag, it might cost you $1.10. So you're not doubling the cost while you're doubling the amount of, of letters that you're transporting. With the telegraph, on the other hand, the marginal cost structure is very different. If it costs you a dollar to handle one telegram, it's probably going to cost you close to $2 to handle two telegrams um, because a telegram 
monopolizes the wire for the time that's being transmitted, and each telegram requires a sending and a receiving operator. So there's no real cost either with regard to the capital invested or the labor cost. There's no real advantage to running a volume business. Uh, whereas with the postal system, there clearly is. You can transmit more letters more cheaply than transmitting fewer, at least at the margin. Um, so that, that cost structure of the telegraph, I, I think the postal telegraph reformers who thought they could lower the price and entice more people to use it, I think they didn't understand that dynamic, that cost structure very well. Um, and when, the, when Great Britain nationalized its telegraphs in 1870, it became clear within a decade or two that you couldn't operate a cheap, popular telegraph system without running a deficit. So I think the reformers didn't quite understand the cost structure and the economics of the medium. You know, and that cost structure explanation ends up having an important role to play in the next chapter, which is particularly interesting. It, it has to do with the supposed effects of the telegraph on, let's say, written language in general in the United States. And you note that this was already a claim made in the early years of the telegraph that concision would be uh, a new trait of American writing. And in part because of this limited use of the telegraph, the fact that it really was just the press and the business world that was sending these telegrams, that in fact this wide claim doesn't hold historical water, but you do argue that cableese, as it was sometimes called, did have a major impact on the news. And so, um, you know, I know it's, it's, it's a lot of material, but if you could just say something about that impact on the news and, you know, why you insist that it fell short of introducing the ideal of objectivity in journalism. Right. Um, the language compression issue first, um, a lot of folks who looked at the telegraph, in, you know, contemporaries in the 19th century, and also some scholars, including James Carey, in, in his famous article about the telegraph, um, essentially say you get the telegraph, and then 80 years later you get Ernest Hemingway and or Emily Dickinson. And I didn't really find much direct evidence uh, or any evidence really to, that, that directly makes that connection. Um, there are other cultural phenomena going on that. Um, create a more realist or succinct literary style in the United States, um, ranging from, you know, consider Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which is a, a remarkable model of, of brevity and clarity, um, or Mark Twain's writing. So I don't think it's possible to attribute that to the telegraph. You could make a better case possibly for the typewriter creating a concise literary style, because when writing becomes mechanized, um, I think there might be an effect there. And you could actually study that effect if you wanted to by looking at, say, business correspondence before and after the, uh, the typewriter. Um, so that would yield a large body of evidence that you could actually make a suggestive connection from. Um, but I didn't find that kind of evidence with regard to the, to the telegraph affecting literary style, either in personal letters or in, in works of literature. The second issue with regard to objectivity, again, Historians of journalism tend to equate telegraphic news gathering with um, the rise of the, the, the value of objectivity or the, the uh, norm of objectivity. And this does go back to the 1850s. Daniel Craig, one of the early agents of the New York Associated Press, famously remarked, 
um, that he wanted to sell the news like a string of onions. So he wanted just objective, factual information and to let editors of newspapers embellish on those facts if they so chose. Um, it's also important to keep in mind that those editors were politically and ideologically driven. Most newspapers in the United States until the 20th century were aligned with a political party. So it's very likely that editors would take the stories that the Associated Press transmitted to them and modify them to, to suit their political ideologies and biases. Um, so it's not really until the 20th century that objectivity becomes a professional norm among journalists. And the Telegraph didn't have all that much to do with it. I think it was a shift in, in journalistic practice and journalistic values that drove that change more than the Telegraph actually did. So in some ways that chapter, you know, we talked about um, technology as a shaper or driver of history. In some ways that chapter on journalism is the null hypothesis that in some cases technology may not change history all that much, even though we expect it to. Right. That comes through, even though you do maintain that there are effects on journalistic writing, just not the full-fledged ideal of objectivity, but that the inverted pyramid style of writing, as opposed to a more chronological account, was influenced by the telegraph. Uh, so you do make claims about the effects, but just uh, qualify them around objectivity. Well, I mean, in the same chapter, I have to follow up about what I think is in some ways the most exciting argument in the whole book, which is that there is a kind of changing psychology of news consumption that news consumers, thanks to the Telegraph, and you cite a few examples, came to expect and hunger after instantaneous and frequently updated news. Um, there was a sort of uh, new psychological demand for news in a way that we, you know, are utterly familiar with watching Twitter for the Pope announcement or whatever. Uh, but, but many of us probably assume is sort of a, a natural and eternal. And what you describe is a kind of history of that news hunger. Um, and maybe you could even convey the flavor of that by referring to the really rich and uh, wonderful example of President James Garfield, who was shot at the beginning of his term in 1881, um, but didn't die until a couple of months later. And can you just describe to those who haven't had a chance to read the book yet about the, you know, the, the news consumption culture that grew up around this incident? Yeah, um, Garfield's assassination is a wonderful example of that. Um, basically, when he was at various points in his um, uh, demise, which took, as you said, a couple months, um, people would gather in front of newspaper offices and also hotels. I found that hotels were important areas for information about Garfield's condition to get out into the wider community. So people would gather it at bulletin boards that the telegraph companies or hotels would set up outside um, to receive frequent updates, in some cases every 15 minutes. And this practice actually goes back to the Battle of Bull Run in 1861, where we see this for the first time, that people gather outside of telegraph offices and newspaper offices wanting to get the most recent updates of a battle that's in progress. So this is a fairly new phenomenon because before telegraphic journalism, people expected that they would have to wait a day or more to receive news from a distant place. So the idea that you could be in New York City and receive updates of a battle in progress was a pretty radical um, step forward. And 
I, I think the larger significance of this is historians need to pay more attention to the psychological dimensions of technological change. We've been very good about evaluating how say, the telegraph affected financial markets or the telegraph affected the conduct of the Civil War. But we've been less thorough or we understand far less, rather, about how people change their expectations, perceptions, and behaviors when new technologies become integrated into their lives. So I think that's a huge opportunity for further study is to try and get inside people's heads a little more. I think that's equally as significant as a technology's effect upon larger social structures. Well, as you describe in the fourth chapter, you can actually look at that as two sides of the same coin. I mean, in the fourth chapter, you're thinking about the Telegraph's impact on finance capitalism. And, you know, here you are talking about institutions, but also the psychology, the experiential side brought about by the Telegraph. Um, and just for for listeners, the, the chapter talks about how trading um, on commodity and stock markets was changed by the telegraph in the last third of the 19th century especially. And in some ways, um, if I can take the claim to its strongest form, um, brought into existence the finance system basically that we still have. Um, And there's so much in this chapter, but perhaps you could begin just by defining um, and tracing the history of the ticker in a business sense, a term people will have heard of, but might not know what it referred to originally. And and, and I suppose if you could just also refer to the, the psychological hold that it came to have on the trading public in just the way you're talking about. Sure. Um, the ticker uh, is a device that I consider very important in the history of, of the telegraph. Um, the ticker is a device that allows you to monitor what's going on on a stock or commodity exchange at a distance. It prints out, um, or today it would just display on a computer screen. But in the 19th century, it was a paper tape that printed out the um, stock transactions as they happened on the floor of, of an exchange. Um, it's developed during the Civil War and right after the Civil War as an outgrowth of speculation in gold in New York. And after about 1870, it begins to to become widely available and and commercialized. Um, Its effect on stock markets and commodity markets basically boil down to this, that before the ticker, if you wanted to trade stocks, you had to go to the stock exchange and say on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And stocks would be auctioned off. The president or vice president of the exchange would say, I've, you know, I've got 100 shares of Erie Railroad stock. What am I bid for these shares? And then there would be a, a, an auction. Um, and then whoever bid the highest for those shares would acquire them. So there wasn't continuous trading. So what the ticker allowed was for continuous trading on all stocks listed on a stock exchange. And it also set, um, liberated um, stock traders from having to be physically present. So you could be in your broker's office monitoring the stock market and placing your trades via the, the ticker and the telegraph network that supported it. Um, so this really, I think, is a key moment in the development of finance capitalism. It's hard to imagine finance capitalism being as robust and important if people had to show up on the floor of the stock exchange to make financial transactions. It's a lot easier to see finance capitalism evolving into its, its modern form um, 
if people can trade continuously on stocks from any place where there's a telegraph connection and a, a ticker machine. Um, the psychological effect, I think, was, was related to that, that by changing the geography of stock markets and, and commodities markets, it also changed how people thought about the markets. So instead of markets being markets that used information, the ticker made markets, um, the ticker transformed them into markets in information. I think that's a crucial term. As far as the individual psychology, we see account, excuse me, we see accounts as early as the 1870s about um, people unable to pry themselves away from the ticker. Um, speculators who simply can't stop speculating because of the flow of quotations over the ticker. Um, so it, I think, reinforces and enhances this is the gambling instinct, the, the thrill of gambling that's present in speculation. Um, so I think the ticker it, it did two parallel things at the same time. They're, they're related, um, transforming financial markets geographically and allowing more people to speculate, but also the psychological allure of the ticker connected very much into kind of mysterious workings in the market that could impoverish or enrich people rather suddenly. Um, so I think those two sides of, of the tickers, the social and psychological, uh, let me rephrase that, that was clumsy, um, that the ticker has two sides to it. One is its, its effect on institutions like stock markets, but also its effect on individual perception and behavior, which also helps shape um, modern finance capitalism and more widespread participation in it. Right. I mean, that psychological allure that you're referring to came across in the book itself um, very vividly in a number of anecdotes. Um, and one of them had to do with the uh, uh, someone who was instructed to pray and could not tear himself away from the ticker in order to close his eyes to pray. Yes, this was the, the famous bear speculator, Daniel Drew, um, who had a short position on some railroad manipulation. It could have been the Erie War. I'm forgetting the exact example, although I could probably look it up in my book. Um, but in any event, uh, Drew took a short position on a stock, and the price kept going up. And he had he was a Christian, devout Christian, and he had a spiritual counselor, a friend with him, who advised him to pray. And the story runs that he tried to pray, and he finally exclaimed, it's no use. I can't pray. The market keeps going up. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a funny story. Good. Well, you know, we don't have a lot of time for the last chapter, but I, I will just ask you quickly about um, the, the chapter five, where you, in essence, kind of engage in a narrative that has longstanding purchase about the ascendancy of AT&T over Western Union. Uh, and there's a sort of received version of that history that argues that, you know, some massive uh, stumbles by Western Union in the late 1870s gave what would become AT&T essentially a uh, uh, wide open purchase on the telephone uh, industry as it would emerge. Um, so, so you want to complicate this story a bit and also, I think, towards the end of the chapter, make a point about innovation and long-term business success. So, I mean, maybe you could elaborate briefly on both those points. Sure. Um, the, the commonly held narrative is that uh, the president of Western Union 
turned down Bell's offer to sell him the telephone for $100,000 because the president of Western Union thought it would be a mere toy. He couldn't see a business application for it. And that's not entirely true because Western Union, as soon as it became convinced that the telephone was a worthwhile device, competed very vigorously with with Bell. Um, Western Union hired Thomas Edison, for example, to develop um, a telephone transmitter and um, Western Union's telephone design was probably better than Bell's. So Western Union competed aggressively. I think Western Union, the managers of Western Union, had the idea that they could simply drive Bell to the wall because Western Union was a much larger and wealthier company. And they had done this with the, the ticker company, the Gold End and Stock Telegraph Company, a few years earlier. And Western Union's solution was to double the stock of the ticker company and take half the stock. So I think they were angling for some sort of outcome like that, where they would essentially control the Bell company while leaving the Bell interests a very tidy sum of money. Um, Bell's leadership saw things differently. They thought they had a superior patent position, and they refused it to give in. And they wound up eventually becoming um, so dominant in the long-distance communications industry that they acquired Western Union for about three years, 1910 to 1913. So in the 1870s, Western Union thought it would control Bell, and it turned out by 1910, Bell was controlling Western Union. So an interesting reversal. The other story here is that um, Western Union's leadership changes, and when it falls under the control of Jay Gould in 1881, for example, becomes a much more conservative company. And it's mainly concerned with paying its investors dividends, and it it doesn't regard itself as a communications company. It simply regards itself as a company that handles telegrams and stock quotations. So it's a really shrunken kind of mission that I think becomes embedded in Western Union's DNA from that point forward, even into the 20th century. Um, so this is a story about industrial succession, how an incumbent industry loses its lead to an upstart rival industry. But it's also a story about how if your company depends upon technological innovation um, as the core of its business model, then you should never, ever give that up. And Western Union did turn its back on technological innovation and accepted a, a much more reduced sense of mission and purpose than it had um, before about 1880. So I think that's the lesson there for um, for today's managers. Um, if your company depends on technological innovation, then you shouldn't ever accept a, a diminished role for your mission. And, of course, you describe how Western Union sent off its very last telegram in 2006. Um, and, in fact, you know, in this conclusion, which you don't really have time to talk about, you, you raise uh, the issues of the connection between the history of the telegraph in America and uh, more recent developments. And you, you know, uh, discuss a recent attempt to lay a fiber optic cable from uh, London all the way to Tokyo, which despite its astronomical projected cost of over a billion dollars was deemed to be worth it because it would cut down the transmission time from 140 to 88 milliseconds or something like this, right? And, uh, you know, in some ways this, uh, this anecdote 
provides a sort of a continuity between the history you're describing and uh, our own development in 2013. Um, and so if, if there was something that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you wanted to be sure to bring up, uh, this is your chance. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I found that story striking that, that a 20th of a second difference mattered in communicating between Tokyo and London. And I didn't quite understand that until after, ironically, um, the book appeared between covers. <laughs> Essentially, this is connected into high-frequency stock trading, mm. uh, which is a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, but arbitrage between financial markets and high-frequency traders, that 20th of a second difference is actually a pretty significant advantage. Whether or not that's legitimate stock trading, you know, I'll gallop on past that issue, but um, suffice it to say that that's very much tied into the high-frequency trading, which happens um, using computers uh, pretty routinely today. Um, what I tried to do in wrapping up my history of the telegraph is to suggest that the telegraph as a medium might be dead, but the ways in which we communicate are very much part of its legacy. So, for example, the major advantage of the telegraph over the telephone, which Western Union's managers asserted throughout the 20th century, was that it left a written record. So they called it record communications as opposed to voice communications, which are um, ephemeral. We have... On uh, most of our telephones, we have the ability to text. We also use email quite a lot. And in some ways, texting and emailing replicate that record communications function. Um, so I think the legacy of the telegraph is less that Western Union sent its last telegram in 2006 than that the ways that the telegraph taught us to communicate and obtain information are still very much with us. So every time we use a smartphone or um, Google to look something up in, in real, I think, in, in very strong and clear ways, we are still partaking of the legacy of the telegraph, not just as a technology and a network, but that psychology that I've emphasized throughout the book that we are habituated to expecting an answer to an email or a text very quickly. We are habituated to demanding instant recall of information over the Internet. And I think we see the origin of that set of expectations in how people adopted or adapted, rather, their practices and expectations to the capabilities of the telegraph. Um, so I think one purpose in, in researching and writing the book is to argue that the communications and information revolutions that the telegraph kicked off have not ended and we're still experiencing their effects in pretty significant ways. Well, you know, that point came across not just explicitly in the conclusion and in the conclusions of a couple of the chapters, but throughout the book, there were all of these parallels that readers, you know, are, are almost invited to, to make just by the fact of uh, our experience as readers um, having such an obvious uh, overlap with some of the early developments in the telegraph. Um, and it really is just a wonderful book. Uh, I'm wondering, is there a project that you're working on now that's a follow-up to it or something related? Yeah, I'm doing, um, I've got two research projects going on. One is a history of thrift, um, which I'm just embarking on. And another one I'm co-authoring with my wife, who's also a historian, um, maybe of interest to your listeners as communications folks. Um, we're looking at 
the radio propaganda war during World War II. And our research right now involves this circuit of um, POW messages that access radio, shortwave radio stations broadcast. Um, so German and Japanese uh, camp commandants or radio broadcasters rather would go to camps and record radio messages or uh, uh, phonograph, uh, short phonograph messages of POWs to their families. And then they would broadcast these on the air after um, propaganda news broadcasts. There was a whole culture in the United States of people who took to listening to these so that they could tell POW families about the fate of their loved ones. And this was a practice very much discouraged by the federal government. Um, so there's a, uh, and and these, these POW broadcasts wind up as fodder for the treason trials of some of these Americans who broadcast for access radio. So we're really looking at sort of the life cycle of one of these POW broadcasts from the prison camp where they were recorded to their transmission um, through the, the propaganda ministry over the air on shortwave radio stations to American listeners who then kind of made a hobby of, of writing, uh, hearing these and writing to the families. And what the families did with these messages We've uncovered, for example, um, three or four family collections that the families have been sharing information with us. And then finally, the use of these messages as evidence during the treason trial of, of people like Axis Sally and other broadcasters from Germany. Um, so that's a, a small bit of the project we're working on right now. We envision it as being um, a history and analysis of the propaganda war generally between the U.S., and Great Britain on the one hand, and Germany, especially and to a lesser extent, Japan on the other. Um, we know some German, but we're not going to be able to learn Japanese. So we get access to German, British, and American sources to do this project. Again, a very preliminary state, but um, it's an exciting, very interesting project. Yeah, it sounds fascinating, and also the, the very method of drawing a thread uh, uh, through these different facets of the history sounds like a great way to approach the history. So, yeah, thank you again, David. I, I really appreciate you taking the time with me, and uh, congratulations again on a wonderful book. Thank you, Jefferson. I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to New Books in Communications. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. 